Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. In keeping with the general theme of surviving the worst, this week's book of the week is The Gift of Fear, Survival Signals That Protect Us From Violence by Gavin DeBecker. The accompanying cocktail is called No Fear and is one ounce of citrus vodka, one ounce of grapefruit juice, and tonic water. So let's do this. Now, if you don't know who Gavin DeBecker is, uh, he has made a lifetime career out of studying violence and more importantly, the innate talent each of us has to recognize true danger when it's present. Well, this gets built in the cup, which makes me happy because I mean, I don't have to stir, I don't have any extra cleaning to do. So in doing so, he recounts some truly horrible life events of women who have survived horrors that the vast majority of us will never encounter and thank God. He recounts the events that led up to these life-altering encounters and what messages the survivors subconsciously picked up on that led to them escaping with their lives. DeBecker makes the point that while he is credited with being an expert in violence, he firmly believes that we are all experts in violence. And this book was written to help everyone see the patterns around us that highlight the presence of violence or about to be violent so that we can be prepared and run away if we need to or take steps to protect ourselves if we need to. I got a whole grapefruit. It was easier than trying to than getting like a whole like gallon of grapefruit juice for only one ounce. And as an extra bonus, I 100% had breakfast this morning. It takes some squeezing to get some, an ounce of grapefruit juice. There we go. An ounce of grapefruit juice. The tonic water technically was supposed to be Schweppes Russian. Don't, they don't carry it locally. They didn't even know what it was. I couldn't find it online, so I don't know if they just discontinued it. It said you could use that or tonic water. I went with grapefruit tonic water because grapefruit, grapefruit, citrus. Let's keep it citrusy. Basically, just top it off with the tonic water. Alrighty then. That looks refreshing, which is good because it's going to be 105 degrees here. So, where was I? He points out that part of the problem, a large part of the problem, is the media, to nobody's surprise, which repeatedly touts that no one could have predicted X, whatever X may be. When, of course, that is utterly ridiculous. X could 100% be predicted, and DeBecker then spends time breaking down the pre-instant indicators that clearly highlighted X was on its way, and that anybody with two eyes to see could have seen X was about to happen. Makes it very interesting reading. I was right, that is refreshing. Obviously, grapefruit's the overwhelming flavor because I picked grapefruit tonic on top of the grapefruit juice. But there's a little bit of, you know, vodka in there, so it might get me nice and, that's not even gonna get me a little bit buzzed. One ounce of vodka is nothing. But it's good, it's got flavor. So this is a quote from the book. Pre-incident indicators are those detectable factors that occur before the outcome being predicted. Basically, he uses ladders, as, like a ladder as an example, like rungs on a ladder. Each successive step increases the likelihood of violence occurring, just like each step up the ladder increases the likelihood you're gonna reach the top of the ladder, right? However, just because someone has taken the first step does not automatically mean the climb up the ladder is a foregone conclusion. Just because they've taken the sixth step doesn't mean it's a foregone conclusion. At any point in time, that can be rolled back all the way up until the moment that the knife is slashed, the bullet is, you know, the, the bullet's fired from the gun, the rope goes around the neck, like whatever, whatever the violence may be, up until then, it can easily be rolled back. I mean, for example, the first 
thought might be that like an intrusive thought about the person who cut you off in traffic, right? Like, does that automatically escalate you to a freeway road rage shooter? Of course not, right? Somebody might cut you off and you might think, oh, that son of a bitch, I'm going to get him. And then you follow him for miles on the freeway because you're having a bad day. Or they might cut you off. You might think, God damn it. You know what? Maybe they have a family emergency and are trying to get to the hospital. And then you wish them well and just go about your own day. So it could literally go either way, right? And at no point does it mean violence is a foregone conclusion up until the point it is. The point of all that is that if you can think of something, no matter how bad or horrifying, then someone else can think of it too. And they might not have your restraint. And if it can be conceived of, then it can certainly be done. Now there is nothing new under the sun. All right, There's no new violence on this planet that hasn't been done before, sometimes in very recent history, sometimes in very past history, but it's all been done before. Now, how can, use that, how can you use that information to help identify possible danger? And this one becomes a bit harder because he calls for empathy. Recognizing someone else's humanity and their ability to empathize can be a path out of madness and danger. And he cites one incident where a woman was in a car that got carjacked, and by listening to her own intuition, she managed to talk the carjacker out of doing anything more than scaring her and taking her on a five-hour joyride because she, she stayed calm, she listened to her intuition, which told her to stay calm and to keep talking. And she made that human connection with somebody that she had absolutely nothing in common with because he had just carjacked her. Now, the news likes to talk about sociopaths and psychopaths, but true psychopaths are exceedingly rare. I mean, they're like less than 4% of the population. It's just, they're rare, right? And generally speaking, those who commit violence are garden variety, meaning they're your neighbors. All right, they're the ones that no one would have suspected because they are just normal people like you or me. Doesn't mean the indicators aren't there, but how often do you actually talk to your neighbors, right? Except for my husband, who is the social butterfly and everybody on the block knows him. And by extension, they all know me because he talks about his wife. It's fine. As we learned during the uh, prepared book, it's good to know your neighbors, so it's fine. Rather than the incredibly rare diagnosis of true sociopathy, the number one indicator of future violence, uh, specifically serial killers, is childhood abuse. Like, 100% of serial killers were abused as children. So, now does that mean if you're abused as a child, you're absolutely going to be a serial killer? Of course not, that's ridiculous. There are way more abused children out there than there are serial killers which is absolutely a horrifying thing to say and a horrifying thing to acknowledge, but it is a fact in life. Not everybody who has kids should be parents. Basically, parents, if you don't want to be having uncomfortable conversations with newscasters about why Johnny snapped, here's your sign, all right? He, he, he doesn't go into the specifics of what is considered abuse, so no word on if neglect will result in a serial killer, although it certainly seems likely. Uh, because, right, if you're getting neglected at home, you want to get an affirmation from somewhere, and that might just come from the police after you're arrested for killing, you know, nine people. It doesn't go into if it's neglect or if it's regular beatings or if even just spanking your child once will result in it. There's no real d definite answer here, but ultimately, does it matter? Maybe try just be loving your kids and raising them in loving homes. And that was DeBecker's suggestion, and that's a damn good one, right? Don't be an asshole to your kid. Now, he does have a full chapter on survival signals, which I'm going to cover here because I think they are important. Obviously, I'm not quoting word for word because I don't want to infringe on his copyright, but 
Random violence fights by strangers is as rare as sociopathy. Typically, women are going to be victimized by someone they know. Now, don't get me wrong. The example he used in the book was a stranger violence that occurred on a woman named Kelly. Uh, But a lot of these are the same things that are taught in, like, domestic abuse courses and, you know, surviving and how to get out and how do domestic abusers select their victims and how do they get them into this position where they feel like it's it's justified, like them being abused is in some way justified. So it starts with force teaming, which is when someone tries to force a connection with you in a kind of we're in the same boat mentality. It's when, it, I mean, it's one thing to joke with a person next to you about a delayed flight, but if the other person tries to get you to commit resource or time as a result of the teaming, then be wary. Why are they trying to establish rapport so badly? Uh, charm and niceness. Uh, charm is an ability and it can be learned. Uh, me, for example, I can be very charming. I mean, I'm not as chummy with the neighbors as my husband is, but I know how to make people laugh and to, and to get a connection with people. It's part of my job. I can also be very bitchy. No problem there. <laughs> I have no problem being bitchy if it means that I don't have to do something I don't want to do. The point being, charm can be turned off or on at will uh, by anyone who has mastered the skill including, and most especially, the predatory criminal, who frequently leaves his victims perplexed and commenting on how he was so nice. He was so nice. I, don't, I didn't know he was going to hit me. He was so nice. And all the indicators are there. Uh, if, if when you first meet them, they're providing too many details, oversharing works hand-in-hand hand with the force teaming and charm, but it also serves as an important red flag. Uh, DeBecker points out the reason they overshare is that they feel like they're doubted because they know they're lying. And so they're trying to convince you they're not lying or providing too many details. And that bolsters whatever the lie is. And there's also another function. The more details they provide, the more you have to think about and to try and parse out what the truth might be rather than recognizing the real truth, which is that it's all a lie designed to keep the conversation going as part of forced teaming. Typecasting. This one was interesting. Remember when I, I said um, uh, that I can be bitchy? Yeah, don't be afraid of that word. If somebody says, why? Boy, you're, you're too proud of this. You're, you're, you must be such a bitch. Yes, yes, I am. And thank you for that. Um, this one was interesting. If you've ever watched any show or read any book about the ultra creepy pickup culture, they call this one nagging where they, you know, try and put you down a little bit. He'll make a statement designed to put you down so that you feel impelled to prove him wrong in some way. Loan sharking. This is when they attempt to place you in their debt. Uh, This might be as simple as carrying a bag for you, loaning you $5 for a cup of coffee. The goal is to make you feel as if you owe them something. The unsolicited promise. As DeBecker says, quote, promises are used to convince us of an intention, but they are not guarantees, end quote. It's just something someone says to get their way. This is something thrown out to convince you of their good intentions. It's just two words, I promise. And for some reason, we all believe it. Oh, well, he promised. Well, if you don't know them to know that their word is any good, why would you accept their promise as good? A promise from a stranger should make you ask why. Why do they feel like they need to promise me anything? They don't know me. Uh, Discounting the word no. And that's, this is not just a very obvious pressure of date rape where a girl says no and is ignored by the rapist. It's when they offer to carry your bag, you say no, and they insist on carrying it anyways. And God, when I was reading this book, I realized, and I realized I had an incident like this years ago when I was working at Fitzgerald's. 
So I was walking to my car one night and I had a bag with me and somebody came up and offered to carry it for me and I said no. And I actually took a step back. I didn't just stand my ground. I took a step back. I created distance between myself and the person. And he's like, oh, come on, let me just help you. And I said, no, I don't need your help. I've got this. And he actually said, oh, are you one of those bitches? And I said, yes, yes, I am. And then I just watched him until he walked away. Now, I know retrospectively, I wasn't thinking, oh, this guy is a rapist because I hadn't read this book before and he might not have been. My thought was he was trying to steal my damn bag. I was going to hand him my bag and he'd run off with it. And maybe he would have. Maybe that would have been the end of it. Either way, I didn't make myself an easy target by being wishy-washy in the moment. I said a firm no and I stood by it. And when he reached out to me, I took a step back, maintaining distance. I mean, all of those are things that you can do in the moment, which is helpful when it's a stranger thing. And that's partly why it worked for me is because I didn't know this guy. It's not anybody I knew that I was like, oh, he's just going to help me that would lead to something more violent. But all of this results in, can be, can result in domestic violence, right? You get somebody who comes into you and forces teaming, oh, we're on the same side and they they charm you and they're very nice. They provide too many details of their life they're, before you know what they're in with you. And then somewhere in there, you say one thing wrong and they hit you and you know it's 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 that fast so all of these points are underscored in the story of kelly who who did survive a horrific rape but almost murder and he outlines her story in detail in the book and he demonstrates which parts of her story match those above points he covers the messengers of intuition which all amount to instincts and how to learn the difference between genuine fear when you are aware of something that's truly wrong in a situation and worry which is when you borrow trouble that doesn't exist and use it as an excuse he covers when strangers are the danger and when loved ones are and how you can tell the difference and how to safely remove yourself from a dangerous situation he does include elements of prediction. I don't want to go into detail here because as DeBecker points out, people who have a checklist tend to check it off. And rather than recognize that a checklist may not be, be comprehensive, that a person may not have every item on those checklists, if it isn't on the checklist, people think that X doesn't fit the pattern and they 100% might. Uh, but the best way to determine if someone is actually going to commit violence is the acronym JACA, which is, it's all perceived as justification, alternatives, consequences, and ability. So does the person feel like they are justified in committing the violence? Do they perceive that there are available alternatives to violence that result in their desired outcome? How does the person view the consequences associated with violence? And does that person believe he can successfully deliver on the violence? And all of these are included with case studies from DeBecker's company, which provides personal security to the rich and famous. I mean, not just to the rich and famous. People who need it can reach out too. But the rich and famous line, basically because several of his clients are both. And although he discreetly does not name them in the book, it's not that hard to Google search and figure out. Um, he spends a not inconsiderable portion of the book discussing how most of us are likely to experience violence at the hands of an intimate partner. Because statistically, that's it exactly. And that does go back to that checklist of the force, you know, the, the charm and the, the force, shit, and I gotta scroll back up. The force teaming, the charm, the too many details, because once they're in, they're in. And then once they're that close, suddenly it's no longer a stranger who's doing this, it's someone you love. It's your husband, it's your boyfriend, it's your girlfriend, because statistically women are more likely to be, the, be, be 
abused, but men can certainly be abused too. And so it's once that person's in, they're in. This book is pretty comprehensive about the causes of violence and how you can learn the pre-incident indicators that will help keep you safe. But a lot of it is about learning to trust yourself. And a big part of it is turning off the television. Shocking. Media exists to tell you a story and there's a reason for the maxim that if it bleeds, it leads. All right. And if there's nothing going on in your town, they will report about the blood and violence that occurred in Florida. Yay, Florida man. Or in Botswana. You know, wherever, wherever there's violence and gore, that's the story that's the top of the headline. Because if it bleeds, it leads. And they always say no one could have predicted when all of it's predictable. Every one of it. De Becker's problem is that he can't be everywhere at once to advise someone that danger lies ahead. And so he wrote this book so that you can be your own eyes on the ground defending yourself against danger by becoming aware of when there is a reason to genuinely fear and when you should feel no fear because it's all in your head. This is a good book. I'm, I, I actually have read it before, but it's been a while. It's got some updates for you know, how things slightly changed with the pandemic and it's got updates, you know, afterwards um, as, as far as his stance on like gun control and gun issues. It's got appendix on questions you should be asking about your child's school and how they handle safety. Highly relevant um, given school shootings, right? Um, it's it's pretty solid. I, I do recommend this. I recommend this for anybody who, who, whether you've experienced violence, hopefully not, or if you're worried that it's a possibility, and hey, it is always a possibility, right? I mean, I'm very lucky in my husband, but there's always a possibility that somebody could snap and decide that I'm the bitch who gets hit today. It helps me, it'll help you recognize those danger signs. And that's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you guys next Sunday.